Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Robert T. Muller for part one of their discussion on trauma treatment through an attachment theory lens. Part two will be released on Tuesday, July 21st. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Robert T. Muller, who trained at Harvard, was on the faculty at the University of Massachusetts, and is currently at York University in Toronto. Dr. Muller is a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, for his work on trauma treatment. He recently released Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up, which was awarded the 2019 ISSTD, that stands for International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, award for the year's best written work on trauma. His award-winning bestseller, Trauma and the Avoidant client has been translated widely. As lead investigator on several multi-site programs to treat interpersonal trauma, Dr. Muller has lectured internationally in Australia, the United Kingdom, Europe, and the U.S. He's been a keynote speaker at mental health conferences in both New Zealand and Canada, and he founded an online magazine the Trauma and Mental Health Report, which has now been visited by over 100,000 readers a year. He has over 25 years of experience in the field, and he currently practices in Toronto. I have to tell everybody that I actually loved his book, um, Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up. The subtitle is From Avoidance to Recovery and Growth. And a good deal of the book is about attachment, our relationship to our clients, how trauma impacts attachment relationships, how the therapist-client relationship impacts the client's ability to resolve traumatic experiences. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I have the book all highlighted and marked up with sticky notes. And um, I know you're really going to enjoy hearing what he has to share. So he will be joining us in just a second. Get ready for an immersive, in-depth series of discussions featuring the one and only Michael Trout alongside Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Coming soon to the Knowledge Center is Navigating Hollowed Ground, insights on how attachment impacts who we are and how we serve others. Using select readings from Michael Trout's upcoming book release, Michael and Karen will dive deep into four topics presented in four sessions. Participants will receive the readings prior to each meeting to deepen the discussion and enhance the experience. And since the readings come directly from Trout's book, This Hollowed Ground Four Decades in Infant Mental Health, you're getting advanced excerpts from the book. For more information or to register for the sessions, head to tkcchaddock.org. So, hey, everybody. As promised, I am now here with Dr. Robert T. Muller for our interview today. And Dr. Muller, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. We're just really happy to have you here with us today. 
Oh, fabulous. I'm, I'm really happy to be here too, Karen. Thank you so much for inviting me and uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yes. So, so one of the things that I really appreciated um, about um, your work and um, is sometimes I feel like attachment theory and research is on one planet and then trauma research and treatment is on this other planet and these parallel universes you know not really talking to each other enough um, about the intersection from each of those disciplines you in your book do such a wonderful job of bringing all of that together for us Thank you. Um, and and I, I agree that a lot of the research has been done separately. It's developed kind of um, in separate kind of research, whatever uh, worlds or paradigms. Uh, but the thing is, and I talk about this in the book, that um, trauma affects attachments. And so you really can't separate them out. I mean, really, one influences the other. Um, and people's and then people's attachments can be traumatizing to them. So really, the two go back and forth. And so you, you really do need to talk about one um, uh, in reference to the other. Yes, yes. And it's so great how um, with your book, Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up, how, how you talk about that. I know you talked about that in your previous book. Um, I gave a formal introduction of you before we started, but I often like to ask my guests and for an informal introduction, maybe any um, personal antidotes about how you found your path to this kind of work or um, things like that that you would want to share with us um, in terms of a more informal sharing of who you are and how you come to this work? Well, um, I, I, do, I, I do talk about this a little bit in my, in my book as well. Um, and, and I'll just mention this briefly. Maybe we'll talk about it in more detail later on. But um, I didn't actually realize how I came to this work until I'd been both in therapy for a while and then also kind of um, been in the field for a while. And uh, initially, I just thought, oh, it's really cool and interesting to study how people's um, pasts affect them and uh, that sort of thing. But then once I actually uh, had really been working in the field of trauma for quite a while, and I was well into my 40s, um, I started realizing uh, through many conversations actually with my parents, um, and, and we they had talked about their childhood when I was a kid, um, but I didn't really kind of realize how much my parents' history of being children during the Holocaust affected me indirectly, and how their history of growing up as children who lost their childhoods and had been through so much and uh, suffered so much, um, how much that indirectly had an impact on me, both in terms of trying to understand them, I think um, uh, both on a conscious and unconscious level, but then also trying to understand the impact of traumatic events and cultural, uh, you know, events that happen to, to, to cultures um, impact uh, people more broadly. So I think, I think being a child of Holocaust survivors and, and people who were, parent, my parents were children during the Holocaust, being a child of Holocaust survivors, I think has indirect, indirectly been what has kind of led me to, to, this, uh, to this area of, of, of work. 
Yes, yes. And I think you bring up such important things in terms of the impact of culture on attachment and family histories. And, you know, you bring up in the book um, family secrets um, and, and the impact on that, that, you know, you think about it as therapists, we're basically like our modus operandi is let's talk about this, be open, be vulnerable, you know, let, let's, let's connect on this when you may um, have come from an experience, even generations back when that's the last thing you should be like, don't be open, don't be vulnerable, don't be honest, lots of hiding of information required for survival. And it's just interesting to me how we sometimes don't pay enough attention to that and think we put this um, value on being open and vulnerable and do not put that in the bigger context of how really that's kind of an outrageous thing to ask for some people, right? Right, exactly. And uh, for some clients, uh, the whole idea of opening up is is actually terrifying. And uh, even though so many come in with whatever difficulties, I mean, they wouldn't come into a psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, whatever's office, unless they actually are suffering in some way. But still, once they uh, are there and are facing somebody who's asking them about something that's so... Um, uh, severe and painful and something they have not uh, been comfortable with, it's very difficult for many people to, to open up. And so that's, yeah, I mean, that's one of the major uh, themes of the book is how to help people open up in a way that is, um, feels safe, feels um, uh, contained, because uh, that's a therapy concept, containment, and it's actually attachment related. The way the uh, parent contains the infant is akin, metaphorically, to the way the therapist should contain the client, um, providing a safe structure, you know, kind of arms around um, uh, the, the you know, metaphorically speaking, uh, being able to provide a, what's called a holding environment to the client. Um, so that it can feel safe enough to open up. So how does that look? How do you do that in the relationship? It's easier said than done with people who have suffered and who then say, you know, um, uh, this is really scary. This relationship is very, very scary. Psychotherapy is scary. So, yeah. Yes, and I think I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the nuances of why it's easier said than done. And one of the things that that you bring out in the book is, you know, this balance between the therapist encouraging talking about this because we have instances where the therapist is avoidant of talking <laughs> about trauma, which hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to talk about that too. But also this idea, and I think this has happened somewhat with trauma assessments and things like that, that we've gotten this idea, okay, we should not be asking about this. So boom, you know, we're going to do our trauma assessments and we're going to ask all this and we're going to launch right into this. And you talk about pacing and you talk about um, that it is not a healing experience when people are talking about this in factual ways with, without any affect. And, and so I, I'd like you to elaborate on, on that, that balance between, you know, we're not avoiding it in treatment, but we're pacing and we're also not just like launching in there, you know, too quickly. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. There's a history of going back and forth, back and forth in terms of what clinicians are being told. And uh, in the 1990s, when I was trained uh, in Boston, uh, we we were really taught to um, uh, that that talking about trauma with people can be re-traumatizing to people. Why were we taught that? We were taught that because uh, the whole uh, uh, repressed memory debate, uh, false memory syndrome, all that stuff was, that was the heyday of that, uh, where previously therapists were talking about trauma with their clients. And then there were many therapists who lost their careers because they were told um, that they were using uh, suggestion to people. And, and some of them did. I mean, there are better and worse therapists, of course. Um and so then what happened is that those individuals uh, ended up losing their careers because they were uh, brought to court, you know, uh, oh, you're implanting false memories into the client's head, et cetera, et cetera. So all that stuff kind of traumatized the field of trauma therapy. And so people went in the other direction and said, oh, well, you know, talking about trauma is re-traumatizing to people, you know, just wait until the client brings it up. Well, then uh, researchers started to see that, you know, if you just sort of, quote, wait until the client brings it up and don't ask anything that, that even uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, brings that kind of uh, approach, um, then people will never bring it up. People will never talk about it. And so that's a, that's a huge problem. So what we um, uh, have un- come to understand is that you really need to help people um, uh, manage this and uh, uh, bring it up in a way that is measured and paced. And so what does that actually mean? Um, pacing means helping the person bring it up as they become ready, really paying attention to their readiness. Um, sometimes people want to blurt out trauma stories. And so what I have in the book is I talk about a number of techniques to slow the process down. I talk about honor the telling. Um, I talk about um, uh, noticing noticing the, the process and listening for it. I talk about revisiting the topic as it comes up again. Um, and so I talk about all this in the book, but really the idea is slowing the whole thing down, pacing, opening up, and doing it in a way that the person's anxiety can bear. And, um, and that's an approach that is uh, uh, an attuned approach, and it's an approach that values the therapy relationship. Yes, yes. And I think helps create that container you were talking about um, and um, speaks to um, co-regulation of the therapist that um, almost preventing the person from rushing too quickly um, as a way of creating more safety um, and I guess even protection might be a, a word that's appropriate. Exactly. I mean, the idea of safety and containment is, is, is how I see it. I mean, yeah, it is protective, of course, of, of the person, but it's providing a sense of containment, holding the person, listening, pacing, um, and um, uh, working with them so that they feel so that it doesn't feel that they're 
exposing themselves. So that's often a problem with people who, who start talking about things too quickly is they feel humiliated and, and embarrassed. Yes. And so you don't want to be in a situation where you're working with someone, you push them to talk about everything too quickly, and then they don't want to come back. They don't want to right. come back for a second session because they feel exposed. And that's the problem. And that's why pacing is so important. Um, and, and that's why we try to manage that. Or they, they could also be in a cycle where they do come back, but they're now their defensive strategies are erected so strongly and, and they're, they're, they're wanting so much to protect themselves from that experience they had before. So you go through this sort of, you know, talking about it, shutting down for weeks. And, it, and it's almost like you're in this, this cycle of really kind of not getting anywhere. Exactly, exactly. Um, I talk about in the book how if somebody brings in, uh, I talk about trauma fragments and helping notice little implications, subtle, um, I don't know, subtle messages that there's been a trauma history and then how to ask it in a way that doesn't that doesn't suggest something that wasn't there. So a person, uh, I have a couple examples in the book of people who uh, bring in stories that suggest a trauma history, how to be curious about that and flesh it out in a way that doesn't suggest anything to them, but then allows them to sort of slowly bring it into the room. Yes. Once it's brought into the room, you also want to pay attention to the idea that it's in the room. So if somebody comes back a couple weeks uh, next week and their defenses are up and they don't bring up anything that's trauma related for weeks and weeks, I say to, to, to supervisees and, and to people who read my book, the idea that they've brought it into the room, it's in there. You can connect whatever they're talking about to something they've talked about in the past and and help them make that connection. Uh, you don't have to wait until they bring it up yet again because they've already brought it in, and they, they it, that took a lot of bravery. Yeah. Um, notice that that you know you can say to them, you know, I'm wondering you're talking about this issue with your boss. I'm wondering how that connects to this issue of X Y Z that you talked about regarding your your um, let's say your your uncle and all that happened with him. You talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Is this similar or different? And so I bring it back into the room and bringing it back into the room allows the person to then be able to make connections to the trauma story without forcing them to, because they can, you know, they can respond any way they want, you know, so that, that's where there's some subtlety. You're not forcing, but you're inviting them to make sense of their trauma story. And that's part of the pacing process as well. Yes. And, you know, that makes me think about um you say in the book that um self-deception and trauma go so strongly hand in hand and i think you know part of what we're talking about here is uh, that balance of you know i'm not going to shove this in your face but i also know that there's going to be a strong tendency for self-deception and avoidance of this Um, right 
And I, one of the um, case examples you give, uh, the, the name, and I'm, I'm sure it's a fictitious name to, to protect the, the person's confidentiality, of course, but the story of Nicholas that you tell, and I, I, I just was so fascinated by your sharing of that case. And I'd like to, uh, if you could share a little bit about that now, and because uh, I think it it's, uh, illustrates some of what we're talking about. Absolutely. Let me just say a little bit about self-deception that you mentioned, and that yeah. is that self-deception comes from a place of, uh, it comes from a protective place. So when people, um, when people engage in self-deception in, in, when they have a trauma history, um, it's because silence has been something that has been so pushed in so many people's families. And so, and loyalty is another thing. So people learn to be loyal to their families. People learn to use silence and it's a way of protecting the family image and people need to protect the family image nobody wants many people don't want to think that they came from you know a family where this and that happened and so people use this self-deception so it's not that they're lying it's that people struggle and they have mixed feelings there's a part of them that knows that bad stuff happened but for so many people there's a part of them that says no no it's not a big deal don't worry about it um, and it happens to everybody or or this or don't whine about it there are people who have so many so much worse lives why am I whining what do I you know what do I have to complain about and so that that idea of uh, trying to cover up one's own history that's what I mean by self-deception and it's a process that comes from a protective place it's it's it, it makes sense it's understandable and, and people try to protect their family members it's scary to think of our family members as uh, you know in, in a negative light uh, for many people. So that's self-deception. So let me talk a little bit about Nicholas. And the piece about Nicholas that's, so let me, I'll, I'll mention a little bit about Nicholas, that this was a guy who was really funny. He was an, he was an interesting person. He was a likable person. Um, but part of the problem was, um, now his girlfriend was the one who said to him, you got to, you know, you really have to go into therapy because you know, he would really try to cover things up, cover things up from himself. And so he tried to sort of um, joke around about things and people loved him for it. It was a strategy, a defensive strategy that worked well. And so I like this example because defenses so often work well. We don't want to take someone's defenses away because it's the way they've managed with bad stuff in their lives. Um, but the problem is um, that his, as, as his girlfriend would point out to him, he's never had a relationship longer than a few months. He was in his uh, early 40s. He, um, and he wanted a relationship. This was someone who felt um, uh, a sense of longing and wanting and things were missing. And so he, he really was suffering. And um, so this is a guy who came in with these mixed feelings. So this, this is kind of the backdrop to Nicholas. So what happened was that um, in his adult attachment interview, Nicholas was asked to give a few adjectives to describe his childhood relationship with his mother, and then to tell a story about each of those adjectives. And the story he told, um, the, the, the adjective he gave regarding his childhood relationship with his mother was good. 
he said they had a good relationship. And then the story he told was about how his mother, when he was young, tried to abort him. Uh, sorry, when, when he was a fetus, his mother tried to abort him. And he found out about the story when he was young. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, and then he tells it as in this sort of way. He says, "Oh, oh, the story's actually cute and funny. You see, she and I became good friends later on." Um, and and then he starts to make these excuses for her that that when he was a when he was when when she found out she was pregnant, she tried to jump up and down to try to get rid of him. So he tells this story, and my reaction is to be kind of weirded out by the story. I didn't know what to make of it. It didn't sound like a good relationship with his mother. It right. sounded, sounded bizarre and weird. Um, and I, what I wondered about was, how is it that his mother told him this, that, he, that, that she actually didn't want him, that she actually, you know, uh, tried to abort him? But he tells it as a funny story. So that's the thing that's strange about him. He tells this story, this odd, weird story about how his mother tried, tried to abort him when she found out that she was pregnant. Um, but he tells it as funny and he's laughing. He tries to get me to laugh along with him. And I didn't know what to make of this. So this is an example. I use this example in the, in the book as an example of someone who uses self-deception. He tells a painful, hurt story where there's trauma and a history of trauma, but he tells it as if it's funny. And there's this weird contradiction. And, and so I unpack this, this example of a story where this b- bizarre contradiction, how does the therapist make sense of this bizarre contradiction? What are the mixed messages about? And how do we start to unpack those mixed messages? That's, that's a little bit about the story of Nicholas. Yes, yes. And, you know, in terms of, you know, what you were saying about self-deception and, and, and the need for that and the lengths that uh, we will go to, you know, even being able to make a joke or, you know, because you talk about in, in the book how he just laughs with his whole body at this and, you know, that, it, that, that, that it's such a funny, funny thing. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm reading it and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, while I'm reading it, how, what a horrifying story, you know, the story about how your mother tried, tried to abort you. I was also thinking about um, even the words that we talk about in therapy, um, denying and minimizing and in the adult attachment interview, um, when you learn the coding system, we're taught something called positive wrap up, where <laughs> this, this story also sort of, it really wasn't a positive wrap up, it was a positive spin on the whole thing. But the idea of positive wrap up is, you know, someone will tell you something really awful that happened, and then there's the idea, and it made me a stronger person. So, you know, you as the interviewer are listening, thinking, wow, this was a really hard thing. But at the end, the idea is it made me a stronger person I'm really glad that they were that way um, and this is another form of that that same kind of thing so I guess I what I'm I'm trying to illuminate here is sometimes I think these ideas denial minimization self-deception I think we've been too hard on people like as you're saying like this this was a way to cope with really awful things that were happening and it served me well you know here I am and I survived it 
Exactly. And, and that, is, that is, in fact, uh, very important when we work with uh, trauma survivors who have this tendency to use uh, av- avoidant attachment as, as a, a, a way of managing life, difficult feelings, vulnerability. They turn their attention away from those kinds of vulnerable feelings. When we, when we have people who, who have this tendency, it's really important that we're sensitive to what ways in, has this worked for you and what ways is this getting in the way? And part of what we're doing with people <clears throat> is helping them become aware that the way they um, uh, coped with things, that they have some choice about that. And now as they think about their life history, they can continue to go down some of those different paths if they want to, and they can also choose to do some things that are different. So with many clients who have an avoidant attachment, perhaps using humor as a defense is something you want to continue to encourage. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, this is a very socially adaptive thing. But it also turns out that when people have an avoidant attachment pattern, that goes along with a lot of maladaptive coping patterns. For example, um, uh, uh, substance abuse is something that we see a lot with people who have an avoidant attachment pattern. Now, Nicholas didn't have particularly bad substance abuse, but many clients just like him would. And so this really gets you into trouble as you know, difficult feelings come, come to the surface as they bubble up. The person needs to tamp those down. They need to, to, to stuff those feelings down. Alcohol is just a great way of doing that. And again, that might work a little bit and a little bit is okay, but the problem is it really can also get in the way of one's life. Um, and, and so many other things, sexual addictions, um, de- depression is something that goes along for a lot of people who have an avoidant attachment pattern. Uh, many of them are depressed because they don't know how to grieve losses. And so sometimes there's another case in the book, the case of Angela, someone who also had this tendency to, to really kind of sweep things under the carpet um, when she had difficulty. Um, and uh, and that, that can be a real problem in, in relationships, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so we want to be able to help the person be able to manage those difficult feelings when, when, they, uh, when, they, get, when they get in the way of, of living life. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why we want to pay attention to the ways in which, it, you know, we don't want to think of it entirely as, quote, a bad or a good thing. What we want to think about is how does, uh, how to avoid an attachment patterns um, work and sometimes not work and 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 what ways in which uh, what are the ways in which we can help people make some co- um, conscious decisions about how they want to do things differently and what do they want to do differently when they have this kind of trauma history yes yes well this is just thus far been a fascinating discussion um i think um it's a good time to wrap up part one here i know uh there's i have a list of things i want to talk with you about for part two but one uh thing i'd like to talk about um that we can get to is um we're talking about avoidant or dismissing attachment which is almost a dampening down of needs i'd like to hear some of your thoughts um on more preoccupied people with kind of, you know, elevated, you know, um, when Dr. Miriam Steele, when we review transcripts about the AAI, she talks about 
you know, the dampening um, of affect and attachment related experience with dismissing and avoidant, but the amplification and almost like a hot bubbling over, you know, experience of anger and um, uh, other feelings with more preoccupied folks. So that's at least one teaser for part two coming up that I want to share with people. So I hope you will all join us uh, next week for uh, part two of our interview with Dr. Robert T. Muller. Um, talking about his book, Trauma and the Struggle to Open Up. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Dr. Robert T. Muller on trauma treatment through an attachment theory lens. Part two will be released on Tuesday, July 21st. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 